And turn to Exodus 14, if you would. Yeah. Glenn, could you turn the lights on too, please, so people can see Exodus 14? I want you to imagine a scenario for a moment here. And you know, whenever a, whenever a public speaker says to somebody something like, like they'll say, I want you to close your eyes and think about this. And there's always somebody in the audience thinking, this is really stupid. Okay? But this morning, I want you to, uh, to think about this scenario. Let's imagine that this morning, you got up and begot, uh, began to get ready for church. You looked out the window. And if you happened to be able to see the Rocky Mountains to the west, you saw that the whole mountain range, as far as you could see, was glowing red and spewing lava. So maybe you even got up and it's still dark and you look out and there's just this incredible red glow and you can see lava spurting up from the Rockies as you look to the west. And then let's imagine that as you watched, five or six massive peaks began to kind of build or maybe more than that, you know, like the, all along the skyline there. And you, I mean, you're Calgarians, you, you drive down Memorial Drive like I do toward downtown and you see that vista. And just imagine that you look out and all you see are these huge peaks, maybe 10 times as large as anything that's there now, begins to kind of rise out of those mountains. And they're all spewing lava and erupting and there's smoke. And you're just looking and thinking, man, what in the world is going on? So you turn away from the window to yell to your spouse and say, Pack the car, we got to get out of here. And you look out the other window to the east and you see arising out of the prairies the same kind of mountain range that you see in the west. And it's all growing and glowing and spewing and smoking. And you think to yourself, my goodness, the world is coming to an end, at least as far as we know it. Like, what is next? Like, if it's, if it's happening on either side of us, then what in the world are we going to do? Now, let's imagine that this is really the case, and I want, to just, want you to just think for a moment, what would you do? What would you do? And again, you think to yourself, this is one of those far-fetched, Absurd things that some public speaker comes up with. But ask the people in Japan. If somebody would have said to them, let's imagine a huge wall of water hurtling our way out of the North Pacific and diluging the north end of one of our islands and thousands of people being killed. They may well have thought, couldn't happen. That's unrealistic. That'll never be the case. But indeed, that's exactly what happened to them. And it's not absurd to think that geological things could happen for which we are, or with which we're totally unfamiliar. Like those mountains got there somehow. I'm thinking personally that there was some geological activity that caused them to be there. Something happened on a dramatic, catastrophic kind of scale. 
Now, the reason I bring all this up is because it's my impression is that this is exactly what it was like for Israel. Can you imagine you come out of Egypt having been slaves for 400 years and, and then the Egyptians begin to chase you and you stand on the edge of the water and watch it pile up on both sides with dry land in between and you walk through. Certainly no less dramatic. Certainly no less kind of catastrophic feeling. Like what in the world is going on here? And even though you had heard from Moses at least about God, and even though you knew that the Egyptians and their firstborns, the firstborn sons had been killed, you knew all of that. Wouldn't it still, I say still, wouldn't it in fact fill you with terror? No different than looking out to the west and seeing the Rockies exploding before your eyes and another range form in the east. I, I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I think I would be terrified. And I would wonder if the next eruption was going to happen underneath my feet. And this is the same kind of thing that happens for them. And so it does make some sense to me that they would be terrified. Now, despite the fact that I think I understand why they would be terrified, there are other things that I don't quite get. Look at Exodus 14.31. This is right after the destruction of the Egyptian army as the seas wash over them. And verse 31 says, And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now that kind of makes some sense to me. You've watched the Egyptians' firstborn sons die. You've watched the waters wash over the army. It would make sense that you would start to put some trust in God. But then I want you to look at chapter 15, verse 24. And what it says immediately before this is that they begin to cross the desert and suddenly they realize there's not a lot of water. And in verse 24 it says, So the people grumbled against Moses saying, What are we to drink? And do you know how long the period of time is between the end of chapter 14 and verse 24 of chapter 15? Three days. In three days, they went from watching catastrophic events and having them be explained to them as godly activity because God specifically loved them. In three days, they're complaining because they don't have any water to drink. Like, are they thinking for a moment that maybe God is incapable of drumming up a few gallons of water for them to drink? But they seem to be thinking that. This would be like these mountains over here, like I've said, kind of exploding before our eyes and the whole thing goes down the tubes and you wonder what in the world is God doing? And Peter comes to work the next morning and says, have you seen the mountains? And I say, yeah, isn't that amazing? And he says, I can't go elk hunting. Or I call somebody up in the middle of the week and I say, did you see what's going on with the mountains? And they say, yeah, I know. I can't go skiing next weekend. And that was my plan. I don't think that would be the reaction. But it's kind of like that when the Israelites say, where's the water? 
Like, did you not see the water standing on either side of the dry ground through which you walked? Are you thinking that God can't do that again? He can't drum up a little bit of water? So that's the first thing that strikes me here, is just how quickly we human beings are willing to just ignore the realities of God. It's amazing to me. Second thing is this. Just like with the Passover, God begins in this event to explain to Israel exactly who he is before he ever gets in to talking about what he really needs for them to do or even about who he is. He talks first about what he has done for them. I want you to look at Exodus chapter 19. Now coming up right after this, there's going to be this incredible display of God to the people. And coming up right after that is going to be the giving of the Ten Commandments. But in chapter 19, verse 3, something else happens. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you were to speak to the Israelites. And then Moses summons the people. He goes down, summons the people and tells them what God has said. And so, as I said, in just a moment, there's going to be this incredible, awesome display of God's power on the mountain. And there's going to be statements from God like, don't come close. If anybody gets too close, they're going to die. And in a little while, he's going to talk about how I want you to do this. And I want you to do this. And I want you to do this. Thou shalt not do this. And thou shalt not do this. And it looks as though he's a very unbending, rigid kind of law-giving God. And indeed, there's a part of that to God's character. But he starts out here with what? Saying to them, first of all, I love you. I choose you. You are my people. I don't know how many of you may have seen this on YouTube. There was a, uh, I, I was just blown away by this. There's this video going around. I saw it on Facebook, uh, it's first on YouTube, of uh, this car videotaping out its dashboard toward the traffic in front of it, going down a snow-covered highway in Russia. And there's an SUV, a big one, it's like a you know a suburban or something, driving down maybe 100 meters in front of the car that's videotaping. And, you know, they're obviously going fast. It's a major highway. There's two lanes on one side, two on the other, you know, going different directions with uh, not much of a median in between. And right down the middle of the highway, it's, there's just a strip of snow. We can kind of picture this. <laughs> and so this vehicle's traveling along, and you see an SUV, and then there's a kind of a cube van over on the right in the, in the right-hand lane. And the SUV just wanders a little bit toward the snow in the center. And just about... You know, it just goes a foot or two into the snow, but its wheels kind of catch in that snow and it begins to slide. And so the vehicle kind of twists for a moment and then slides and it slides right into the cube van, which then it gets kind of pushed off to the side of the road. 
But then because it hit the cube van, the vehicle now is pushed the other way, and it turns and kind of jolts across in front of the oncoming traffic coming the other way. And there's a semi coming the other direction, and it absolutely destroys that SUV. And, and this is all live stuff. It's not made up. This, this is this video camera out of the front of this other car. And, and you can hear the people in the car going, Oh, no! And they, you know, they're, it's in Russian, so I don't really understand it. But I'm thinking, oh, no, is what they said. So then they, you know, then they pull over and the cube van pulls over. But the, the vehicle that is hit by the truck was absolutely pulverized. Like there was nothing left. It was just pieces. Like anybody in the, I mean, anybody in that vehicle would have been killed, obviously. Well, as a parent, I watched that, and my first thought was, I need to talk to my kids about being safe on the roads. <laughs> and, and I thought, this is interesting, because I, I would call my 29-year-old son, who's been driving for 13 years, and would want to tell him how to drive. And I have another son who's 26 years old and he's been driving for 10 years, but I want to call him and tell him how to drive. And Megan's 21 and she's been driving for just a little while and so you better listen to me today. <laughs> but I want to do that. And if I did, can you imagine my son gets a phone call from his dad? Adam, I just wanted to call you and talk to you about driving. <laughs> he would think... Dad's lost it. Like, what is this all about? He's calling me and giving these, me these rules, these instructions about driving. But why would I do that? Because I love my kids. And even now, I think there's things that I want them to understand and learn and grow from. Well, why is it that God, before he gives them the rules, before he gives them the Ten Commandments, bothers to say to them, I want you to understand that I have chosen you special that you are going to be my people. And yes, in a moment, I'm going to be up on a mountain and it's going to look like you should be terrified of me. But first, understand that I have chosen you and I love you. You are my people. And so we need to see that when God gives law and when God reveals himself in incredible ways, he does it to the backdrop of his care and his love and his choosing. And that's because he's a relationship-building, loving God. And so look with me at the, at the story here in Exodus 19. Let me read some of these verses. But read these with this backdrop of this God who loves us and cares for us and gives us rules because he knows that these are absolutely the best things for us. Verse 10 says in Exodus 19, And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he should not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. And you just think, what kind of God is this? You can't touch this mountain. Or you will die. 
But there's a sense in which God, because he's loving and because he cares, and it's because he's so holy, simply wants to, on the one hand, show his holiness and help the people to understand that he is God and they are not, which is absolutely to their benefit. They are dust and he is not dust. He creates dust. And then, of course, there's the desire on his part simply to protect them. People can't handle being in the presence of God. And if they find themselves so close to him, death can only be the results of being in the presence of that kind of awesomeness. And then I want you to just see something specific about the law that he gives. Look over at Exodus chapter 20. And people for a long time have made the comment that there are two different sections to the law, to the Ten Commandments. That first there's the section that says, obey God, have one God, have no graven images, don't profane his name, remember the Sabbath. There's that section to the law, and there's the section that says, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, those kind of things. People have noticed that for a long time. Now, it's interesting. If you read ancient law books, it is not uncommon to find the second six of the laws in the ancient law books. Like we have a code from Hammurabi's day that specifically lists almost all of the laws that come in the Ten Commandments. The bottom six are part of the literature of the day. Those are pretty common laws. And they make sense because people recognize we have to have these kinds of laws in order to live in in uh, in a civil kind of structure. But the first four are unique. Absolutely unique. And the reason they're unique is because in these first four, God is saying, this is who I am. And I want you to know me and be in relationship with me. And so law here is not for the sake of keeping people under God's thumb. He can do that really easily if he wants. If God wants to make people slaves to laws, he can do that pretty easily. But what he does instead here is nothing less than reveal himself, show his existence so that we can understand who he is. Now, why does he want us so badly to know who he is? I think it's because he wants us to know who we are. Who are we? You know, what we find in the story is that we are people who three days come in out of Egypt can act like he didn't do what he did before. We are people who will, in fact, given the opportunity, try and get really close to God, not respecting the distance between ourselves and him. And so he has to set limits. We are people who will manufacture for ourselves our own gods. And so he has to tell us not to do that. And we are people who will take liberty to behave in ways that are simply ungodly. And he knows it. And so he asks us not to do that, and he makes it very clear. 
And all of that happens because God wants more than anything for us to know Him, to understand Him. We don't hear thunder, we don't see lightning, we don't experience earthquakes from God, we don't see the mountains rising and rumbling and spewing lava. I made all that up. And unfortunately, because we don't see all that, we will forget Him. And we will act as though He's not there. And so I'll get up tomorrow morning and I may well not think of him right off because there's no mountains out there glowing red. And he didn't speak to me from a mountain today. And so it will be so easy for me to forget him. And what these stories say more than anything else is don't forget who you're God is. It's so easy for God to be a footnote in our lives. Someone to whom we throw a few minutes on Sunday morning, a few minutes of our time, a few minutes of our attention, a few dollars from our wallets. When all the while, He is the one who can make the mountains quake and the seas roar. Even as He is the one who reveals Himself as our great lover who seemingly does everything He does just for us, including sacrifice his own son that we might live. And so these texts call us today not to forget our God. Let's pray. Holy Father, I don't see the mountains glowing. I don't feel the earth rumble. And so it's easy for me sometimes, God, to to almost forget that you're there. And God, if it's easy for me, it's easy for everyone else too. Help us, Lord, to see in your mighty displays in the past, what you want to be in our lives in the present. And help our hearts to dwell there. Help our minds and our spirits to dwell there with you. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.